Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen-Watt, and in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is Dave Hollis, a New York Times bestselling author, host of the popular Rise Together podcast, keynote speaker, and life and business coach. Dave's history includes CEO of a media startup, president of sales for the film studio at the Walt Disney Company, talent manager across film, TV, and music, along with work in publicity, research, and technology in the entertainment sector. Dave's leadership has helped relaunch the Star Wars franchise and guided the release of global hits like Frozen and Beauty and the Beast. He also sat on the board of the membership committee for the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, of which he is a member, and on the boards of Fandango Labs, Will Rogers Motion Picture Pioneers, National Angels, and his alma mater, uh, Pepperdine's Institute for Entertainment, Media, and Culture. Welcome to the show, Dave. Super excited to have you on. Uh, I'd love it if you can give us a little bit about you and your story, because I think you've got a really, really interesting background. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. I uh, am the father of four kids. We'll start there. I live just outside of Austin, Texas, here in the U.S., and am a work in progress, the way I would describe myself. Uh, Someone who is just perpetually and continually, for the rest of time, trying to continue to put myself into new spaces so that I can learn and grow and uh, do everything I can to become this person I'm hoping to be at the end of my life. I have had uh, an interesting uh, couple of chapters, as it were, in my professional career. I spent the first 20 or so years of my life inside of traditional entertainment jobs. I worked at Fox, worked at a talent agency, managed talent for some length of time, a grassroots marketing agency, and then spent 17 years at the Walt Disney Company, where I went from a brand assistant to the president of distribution. I was the head of sales at the studio before I left. In 2018, uh, as I say, I left my career for my calling and uh, walked into entrepreneurship, the interest of creating tools, resources for people that if they were to use them might afford them breakthrough in their own life, the uh, opportunity to get a step closer to themselves, to how they maximize their potential or get closer to purpose. And so as much as my 99-year-old grandma is also wondering, what the heck do you do, Dave? Uh, The easiest way to explain it is that I'm a reporter of sorts. I write books, have podcasts, do coaching in an attempt to take my experiences and the things that I have learned from other people, aggregate them in a way that through my reporting might allow other people to understand either something in how they might see themselves in my stories or my storytelling, or 
the way that I might uh, package somebody else's wisdom so that they might hear it or understand it in a way that makes it practical in their life. So uh, that's who I am. That's what I do. I'm uh, enjoying it and uh, I'm just getting started. What made you take that change of course? Well, around my 40th birthday, I was having this like bigger set of existential questions pop up in my life around why I was here, why I'd been given the gifts that I'd been given, but not necessarily in a position to use all of them. I found myself working at the Walt Disney Company during one of the most prolific runs in the history of the studio business in that when I became the head of sales, they had not yet acquired Marvel Studios or Lucasfilm. And by the end, they had. And so then as the person who was taking these films from the most prolific brands and the best storytellers on the planet to movie theaters, I had just extraordinary leverage to ask movie theaters to pay, frankly, whatever we wanted them to pay for Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucas movies. And uh, as it turned out, whether it was the strength of the team or the best leadership in the history of corporate America, the biggest and best intellectual property, um, there was something that was disconnected for me in having been given these gifts and not necessarily having to use all of them to do well. I was getting straight A grades without having to study for the test. And I found myself out back one day, right around 40, as all these questions are in my head. And I, at the time, had three boys. Uh, they're now 14, 13, and 9, but then were 9, 7, and 4. And my seven-year-old asked me a pretty simple question that he was looking for a, a pretty simple answer around, which was, what's your biggest fear? We were playing this game in our hot tub that we always played, ask dad, dad anything. And usually it was gross and ridiculous stuff. But this time he asked this question and he was looking for tarantulas or scorpions and out of my mouth fell, not living up to my potential. And what I realized in this unconscious thing that now became conscious that uh, I was in real time living into my greatest fear. I was in a job that for so much of my life I thought would be my dream job that to the outside world certainly checked many boxes with the title or the status or the way that it might allow me to sit at certain tables with certain people. Um, I thought it was a thing that I was going to be happy with or fulfilled by. And yet there was something that felt like it was missing. I, I just wasn't in a place where I was still growing because the strength of that slate or the strength of that team was not having me uncomfortable. I, I'd moved away from the learning curve. I was in a place where I wasn't um, in that discomfort, having that friction produce growth. And so in the absence of growth, in some ways, I, I mean, I don't mean to be dramatic about it, but I do believe that you're either growing or dying. And I found myself in what felt like a state of death in that I was no longer becoming I was devolving uh, in some ways into a version of myself that I didn't have pride for. And so I had in that conversation in a hot tub now uh, an, a reason, an excuse to create action. And the action that I took was making a pretty dramatic decision to leave a job that few would leave, to pursue something that didn't make sense to others, but definitely made sense to me. And uh, as much as I'd love to say that that was, you know, the hard decision, it actually was the first of what ended up becoming a series of hard decisions as I found myself absolutely getting what I asked for in discomfort, 
being in a new place, trying new things, failing regularly so that I could learn from those failures. But as I look back now on these last four or five years, I have become who I've become in so many ways because of this decision to leave what I knew for the things that I ultimately needed. I, I was, I was going to ask, did you, did you transition or did you dive all the way in? And it sounds like you dove all the way in. Was there any idea of what you were going to do or was, and you just had to cut off? Or was it kind of like, this is what I'm going to pursue. I'm going to make it work. And then you found struggles. Like, what was that about? So I did have a plan. Uh, at the time, my then wife uh, was working in a business that she'd been for nine previous years working on by herself. And uh, it felt like it was at a tipping point of sorts in terms of its potential to grow. And as much as she had historically been the dreamer, I had something in my operational expertise, in some of my pragmatic, practical wiring that could pair well with her vision and dreaming that if we were to pull those two things together, that there might be an opportunity to take this thing that she'd been working on and take it to a next level. And so I left uh, this conventional corporate job for entrepreneurship and a company that we would ultimately rename and call the Hollis Company with uh, four people that we brought from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas. And over the next couple of years, as we were building and scaling and scaling, uh, we turned those four into 65 and had uh, success beyond, honestly, anything I could have expected in books, podcasts, live events, merchandise, speaking, a whole host of uh, vertical businesses that uh, in almost every single instance was something that I didn't have a depth of familiarity with. And so there was just a ton of learning. I thought that because I had all this experience at Disney, that there was going to be a lot of application from where I'd been to what I was diving into. And as it turned out, a lot of what was jarring in this transition was the lack of application for some of what I was getting into. I'd come from leading a team uh, around the world, 72 countries, thousands of people, to now jumping into something where there were just six of us. And if there was a, 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 a quality of the people that I was working with at Disney, they, because of the depth of their subject matter expertise, uh, they had a nose for smoke, right? Like they could sniff out where opportunity or problems exist prior to them actually presenting. And so before a fire, they just with that nose could identify it. And more often than not, as a leader, I was getting an update on how they had either taken advantage of something opportunity-wise or had put out something fire-wise before the fire itself actually showed up. When I got into this entrepreneurship role, uh, we just saw fire multiple times a day, right? Like we as a small team were venturing into parts of the forest that we'd never individually walked inside of before. And so there was no nose for smoke. And there was just this frequency of things showing up that we could not have predicted and in a weird way, there was at the beginning something for me that had me very hard on myself for not being able to preempt the problems that would show up or the failures that we would end up learning from. I ended up actually having a really great experience in Rachel, my ex-wife, was uh, at the time speaking with John Maxwell. And we were backstage with him kind of sharing a little bit of what felt frustrating about the frequency of fires in this small business. And in a way that only someone who's worked as long as he has and, and written as much as he has in leadership, he said something that was so simple, but so profound. And it was, 
You can either have multiple good days in a row or you can run a small business, but you can't have both because fires, as it turns out, is the price of entry for anyone who wants to walk into entrepreneurship. And so in a beautiful way, as much as, yep, there wasn't as many transferable qualities to some of my experience at Disney as I would have hoped, there also was now some grace that could be afforded to my experience in putting out those fires as the price of entry for learning the things that were necessary for us to actually scale. And so, so much of our story ended up becoming, we're going to try something new. It's not going to go perfect. As it doesn't actually perfectly unfold, we're going to learn from what doesn't work and we're going to build a new process or system, add new people or tap into some new expertise and get it a little bit better, whether it's in the way that we deliver product to the consumer or the way that we organize the team, the way that we have somebody who has a little more depth in subject matter expertise. And over time, we just kept tweaking, tweaking, tweaking and, uh, and built something that I have so much pride for but that at the beginning certainly was uh, an unexpectedly jarring experience coming out of what I knew so well. So, so facing all of this, having had it, you know, let's call it easier with status and, and all that, you know, sitting at the cool, cool kid tables, uh, why didn't you quit in the pursuit of this? What kept you going? Because I think a lot of people listening to this have quit, are quitting, or to think to themselves, that's so hard. Like I, you know, my business is struggling and, you know, I don't know what to do and I don't know how to figure it out. And the back of our mind for most of us is I should quit. But for a small few of us, myself included, you, I would presume people that I bring on the show, we don't quit. So what was it for you? Why didn't you quit? Was that even well, in your head? Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 Biggest reason to not quit was the connection we maintained to impact. Because as much as there were fires and as much as it was frustrating and as much as there was a ton of growth that came in the breaking down of muscle that built it back up stronger, the through line was we were still consistently delivering something that the audience was receiving with open arms. And the way that we were able to stay inside of a feedback loop with the audience that was telling us, hey, you're onto something, but also, you're onto something, but also gave permission for us to keep trying things that fell outside of our core competencies or we hadn't necessarily done before because we were in so many ways listening to what they were representing that they needed. And we were trying to develop strengths that might serve their needs in a super specific kind of way. And so really, I mean, I give a lot of credit to the community of people that we found ourselves in life with on a very regular basis because their regular feedback of, my goodness, this work is working. My goodness, these tools are helping me have breakthrough. My goodness, the way that I am actually applying what I learned at that live conference is changing the way I'm showing up for myself or love myself or love the ones I love the most. And so being connected to that impact was a salve that could take care of any of the frustration that you'd feel on a down day. Were you actively looking for it or did you have to remind yourself of that? Because I know that, you know, if I'm having a tough day and there's, you know, there's that one client or that one situation and it can feel like it's far bigger uh, when, we're, when we're looking at things under the microscope because we're the, the owner, the operator. But then what I 
tended to do and, and, and do every day is, is step back and go, okay, there's that, that one person, that one issue, but is this, you know, uh, is the whole, is the whole body full of cancer or is there one cell that's isolated that, that we can, you know, treat, so to speak, because I think a lot of us fixate on these struggles, these issues, and we don't see it for what it is, is a small part of a very big pie that actually tastes really good because people love you. And we just can't yeah. forget. Like, what's yours? Well, I mean, I, I do think you have to be active and intentional in trying to find the confirmation of what you're doing that's working well, but also be open to the possibility that what you're doing could be better by listening to the feedback that someone might provide in how you could have done it better. At the same time, anyone who creates anything, uh, I think we have, a, unfortunately, a part of our humanity, if you had 100 people that you might affect with something that you create, 10 people out of that 100 may very well not be your audience. They don't have an appetite for it. They are turned off by it. They may, in fact, be the trolls that decide to write things in the comment section of whatever you're creating. And instead of focusing on the 90 people that would be the beneficiary of the work, we get distracted by listening to the 10 at the expense of the 90. So part of what you have to do is just train your focus on who the work is intended for and release yourself from the worry of creating something that will be universally loved. You are not free ice cream. You will not be universally loved. And the sooner that you can become comfortable with, you know, like I write books. I am super excited about the book I have coming out October 26th. It is going to be the most proud thing I've ever released in my entire life. And there will be people that just fundamentally do not like that book. And guess what? I didn't write it for those people. And I can either consume my time by looking at those negative reviews or the way that a Reddit community wants to light me up, or I can stay focused on and connected to the community of people that are absolutely 100% having transformation because of the work. And whatever you do, whoever you are, listener, like you're doing something that has in the niche that you've decided to serve, you have people that absolutely are the beneficiaries of the strengths that you're bringing to their needs. But we spend too much time worrying about the people who our strengths are not meant for, and we have to intentionally pull our focus back to those that it was intended for rather than wasting our time and our emotional energy on those that it was never intended for in the first place. For me, if, if, if somebody doesn't like something or, or you know, they're upset by it or it's a, it's a, it's a comment on my, one of my ads, it's like, oh, you don't, you don't like it? No, I don't. Oh, it's not for you. And that's just the story in my head. It's like, if you don't like it, it's because it's not for you. And, and that's allowed me to separate because I think part of the human condition, like you said, it, it's like, if I'm pleasing 70 people with whatever I'm doing, but there's five that dislike it, that plays more on our, our biology than the 70 who are positive. And, it's, and you would know this intimately being in the, in the entertainment space. What, what's colloquially said, right? Like one negative review is 10,000 represent, you know what I mean? Like we're so concerned about what that one person says that we will alter an entire, uh, our thought processes, our actions, everything off of such a small amount. Can you speak to literally why that's the case? Like, I feel like one, you know, one mom complaining about a movie makes everything shift, even though everybody else loves it. What's been your experience well, with that? And why do you think that's the case? And I, I mean, I'll that. say this, and this is going to be heresy because I'm speaking to a New Zealander. Uh, I don't like Lord of the Rings. I, I'm sorry that that might pierce your soul, but I don't. 
And the fact that I don't takes nothing away from the millions and millions of people that love it. The fact that it's made billions of dollars, the fact that it spawned a sequel series called The Hobbit, which I also, I'm sorry to say, do not also like, it doesn't in any way take away from the quality of that work. And so the fact that I don't like those films or that series in no way demeans the fact that it is the highest quality, most loved thing for many, many people and is among the most successful film franchises in the history of the film business. Every person out there has individual taste. They have individual wiring and are looking for a set of tools that meet them where they are. And the, like, the ego inside of any of us as creators that would hope to be the silver bullet that solves the problems for all people is a, is a, is a bar that's just too high. It's an impossibility. And so, you know, when I was in, certainly in the film business, you know, we would do testing on every single thing that we would do, whether it was the film or the marketing assets or the trailer or, or the billboards or whatever it might be. And there was always, every single time, plenty of people that did not respond to the film or the billboard or the trailer. And we just knew, oh, this movie is not for them. We are actually now better informed by understanding who doesn't want this or doesn't feel like it's for them so that we can now target our message, target our marketing to the people that it's actually for. Didn't make that product bad. There are plenty of movies that we had bad reception from a certain segment of the audience. And in no way did it take away from our ability to market it, to sell it, to have it become commercially very, very successful to the people it was intended for. And so for whatever you're creating, whether it's you as a personal brand or you developing a product, it's likely not going to be for everyone. Unless you like create Seinfeld or Friends, like it's likely not going to be for everyone. Even those two examples, by the way, there are plenty of people that don't like Seinfeld and Friends. And it doesn't in any way take away from the quality of what those TV franchises end up meaning. I, I might even be talking in a way that's a little more US centric. I don't know how those, those franchises work in New Zealand as a for example, but just because they might not work in one geography or to one demographic in no way demeans what they are from a quality standpoint, they were just created for specific people. And the sooner you can divorce yourself from thinking that you have to create something that will make all people happy, the sooner you can really focus your efforts on those that it was actually intended for. Circling back a little bit at the start, you talked about, you know, you're in, in this pursuit of never-ending improvement uh, until your last day. I think that's the the human condition when we start to get perspective on things is, is like how there is no point that I'm now happy, successful, healthy, because life is, there's a regression to it. There's, there's, you know, degeneration to it. And it's this constant battle to stay above ground, so to speak. You know, if you don't keep drinking, you don't keep eating, et cetera. But I think that more importantly, I think that where we find our purpose is in our progress, because we'll be left behind if we're not progressing. I'm a father of two boys. It'd be different than if I was a father of two girls or one of each or not a father or a father of four, which I couldn't imagine, uh, especially at this age. Uh, maybe later, but I, I see it as this opportunity versus this this stress of having to continually progress. And I think that's what makes me a successful entrepreneur as I'm looking at all things like that. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Because you you know you left this the cushy job 
to pursue pain, um, but from the pain came the growth. How much do you think it's been everything that you wanted to be and and how much of it maybe is not what you expected? Well, what's interesting, I mean, I think that as humans, there is a constant that is change, right? Change is just a constant that will exist in our lives and end up pushing us into a space of new, and that new is uncomfortable, right? Like we've become accustomed so often to what we are used to that anytime we get put into a new space, it's disorienting. It's unmoored. There is something that requires you doing things to create equilibrium or get your sea legs as you're now out in that choppy water. But that choppy water exists for growth, not like in spite of it, but because of it. And I know for the transition from corporate America to entrepreneurship, I, in the last two years, went through divorce. And that like, change that shows me was, again, one of these things that had me having to reconcile who am I now that I'm no longer who I used to be or who I thought I would be for the rest of my life. And in each of those instances, there is, sure, post-traumatic stress that exists when you have something that's new, but there's also post-traumatic growth. And I can say, you know, certainly at least in the last couple of years, I mean, I had this like very bold declaration at the end of 2019 that 2020 was going to be my best year ever. I'd saved it for my 45th year on this planet. I didn't, though, at the time of the declaration, appreciate the conditions through which my best year ever would show up. And as it turned out, for me, I ended up having to go through a divorce and a big identity crisis of who am I if I'm not husband to this person? And who am I if I'm not working with this person that I thought I would work with for the rest of time? The, the breaking down or the death, as it were, of that relationship and that work environment created this opportunity in the discomfort for me to, having been handed a bit of a blank piece of paper, have this terrifying and exhilarating opportunity to write whatever might serve best the ability for me to stand in who I was placed here to be and how I might best use the gifts and tools that were given to me. I wouldn't have been given those opportunities if it weren't for the fact that those changes happened. When it came to leaving corporate America, leaving Disney, there were so many things I thought it would be, and I was wrong in almost every instance. And so just because you have a handle on, or you think you have a handle on what it's going to be, the decision to choose change is the most important and biggest decision that you can make. It turns out, though, that it's just the beginning of a series of what ends up being trials in some way of you experiencing new so that in getting your legs under yourself and, and creating something of a new normal inside of a space you haven't been in before, you're developing new skills, developing a new circle, developing new ha habits and routines that will, in that new space that's uncomfortable and disorienting, create growth. And so I can, I look back now and I just have so much gratitude for the decision to leave Disney. I have gratitude for the decision I didn't choose in my divorce because of the way that it produced that post-traumatic growth that would have not in both instances happened if not for the disorienting feeling of being either, either choosing to leave my safe harbor as it were, or being forced out of my safe harbor into something new. Yeah. And for me, it, it's illustrated, you know, in, in, a, in an odd analogy, but like skydiving, right? Like one of them is 
you're actually in control and having fun and the other is you're you're dying both of them you know they can feel like each other depending on your perspective if you don't realize the backpack contains a parachute and you've got opportunity to pull it uh whether it's on your back or not you're going to have a terrifying experience if if no one's told you that at 1000 feet it's going to pull uh, automatically then it's just terrifying and i think that it, it's for me hearing that it, it's looking at everything as an opportunity there is no there is no problem it's just an opportunity and how can i swing this but i think that comes with like there needs to be a part of you that that looks for that and it's not being about being delusional it's about just realizing well what can i control and what can't i i can't control necessarily the problem that that's there but i can control my perspective of it and growth comes from for me it was it was realizing that if i don't shift perspective uh, i will hit the ground yeah so it was almost maybe maybe i won't say lying to myself but convincing myself that i need to be pro problems because they're opportunities and it creates growth and let's just keep going and i white knuckle it through because that gave me the the strength to then jump out of that plane again and again and again and realize like hey this is actually fun whereas everyone else is still thinking you're delusional um yeah. saying to me you like to take risks james and i'm thinking no it's not a risk 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 implies i don't know what i'm doing yeah no by the way i think there's more risk in not jumping i, I have come to appreciate that the biggest risk is deluding yourself into believing that staying where you are will serve who you hope to become. I just don't think that that's the case. And in a crazy way, one of the things that got compromised in each of both leaving Disney or transitioning out of being married, the, the thing that was uh, sacrificed or the first casualty in both instances was my ability to cast an unbelievably clear vision of where I was going because there was a lot of fear in both instances of what the unknown that lied ahead would look like. And what's ended up happening as a result of facing those fears is that I now have reframed a little bit of my relationship with fear in that when I am afraid of something now, I see it more as an invitation to step closer to it or walk toward it because I have so much evidence now of how facing fear, walking toward fear, doing things that scared me actually produced something that I have so much pride for now and who I've become and how I've grown that when I do have fear for something, I'm like, oh, yep, it's going to be scary. Let's go ahead and strap on some courage and walk toward it because this invitation to do something that scares me will reframe how I believe myself to be capable of doing this or any other thing after I faced the thing that I have fear for. So I think there's something interesting. Like if it's the you know skydiving analogy or anything else, if you're afraid of skydiving, go skydiving. It will change the way that you have a belief in your ability to handle things like skydiving. And I just, I've been in these last couple of years, just like I've been in the season of yes. I just keep saying yes to things. And especially when they're scary, because every single time it's taught me something about myself. I've learned more about who I really am and what I can really handle by saying yes to things that make me afraid. I think that people are generally speaking not very good at assessing risk and it's super apparent when you talk to people who haven't taken any risk but they haven't seen the fact that like you said not taking risk is the riskiest thing you know if your if your house is on fire and there might be a bear in the woods do you leave your house well it's scary there might be a bear 
but I'm guaranteed to die if I stay in my house. Uh, people will stay right till the end, almost to the point that now I can't leave. And we all know people who, who didn't leave and then wanted to after the fact and were trapped because they were so afraid to. And I think it, my perspective is that people are afraid to make the wrong decision uh, more than missing out on the right decision. It's yeah. like, well, you know, I'll forego that thing because I'm a martyr. I won't get it. That's okay. Because I'm so afraid of making the wrong decision. But it's in the wrong decision, which isn't really the wrong decision. Nine times out of 10, you find yourself, you find growth, and then you achieve the things. Because neither of us just made a decision and cool, we got some success. Like we, we and I don't say that I made the wrong decision. I said, they're all learning opportunities. Because the moment I call it a wrong decision, it implies that I can make wrong decisions. And then that gets me all mucked up and, and back to, you know, the status quo of not making those decisions. But, uh, you know, whether it's uh, opportunity cost, uh, whether it's, you know, staying stuck and never achieving potential, I think that that's, that, that terrifies me. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, like if, if you think about a, a big circle, just go with me for a second, that is uh, all the things that we fear, right? Like I think that there's some part of our human condition that thinks about every single possible scenario, a lot of times leaning more toward the worst case scenario than the, the more likely scenario. But uh, think about a big circle as what we worry about. And then a subset, a smaller circle inside that big circle is the things that can actually happen, right? Like we worry about a bunch of stuff that doesn't even have a chance of happening because that's just part of our human condition. And there's a subset inside that is the things that can happen. And then think about a little pinprick inside of that smaller circle. Those are the things that do happen. Right. So we've now expended all of this energy on this very, very big circle that goes wildly beyond what can happen. And even if we just worried about the things that can happen, it's wildly more than the things that do. And so part of what we have to train our focus on is what can actually happen or even maybe more importantly, what actually does happen. Because like, and I'm a math person. So like when my kids start to worry about something that is ridiculous, I have a kid who is worried about appendicitis. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to break this down in math, brother. Like there is a higher probability of you getting hurt on the monkey bars than there is and you having an adverse reaction to anesthesia inside of an appendicitis attack that you don't even have any reason to worry about. I've never had appendicitis. I don't have any instances in my life of someone having a bad time with appendicitis. Why are you spending time worrying about this? But um, I think that's part of it. One of the other things though that I think is fascinating about us as humans is that we get so enamored with and put on a pedestal at times, the things that we are familiar with, that at times we can even do it to the suffering that we have familiarity with. Right there, there are I think times when we have a way of uh, of putting our suffering on a pedestal or or staying connected to it in a way that even if it is the thing that could kill us, we wouldn't let go of because it's become part of our identity because it's something that feels like there's some predictability around the thing that we've suffered with. And it could be a bad relationship or a bad work environment or the uh, negative coping mechanism that we continue to lean on. But whatever that suffering is, we stay with it because it's just become part of us. And the idea of letting go of that suffering creates unpredictability that we would fear 
what would happen if that wasn't part of our story? And whether it's martyrdom or I think it's truly just like familiarity, it's a very, very strange phenomenon that we honor our suffering in a way that wouldn't allow us to move past it because what of, of what it might mean if it wasn't a part of our life. And I just I want to encourage anyone, like suffering doesn't have to be a part of your story. There, there is an, a, another version or option, but it will be uncomfortable. It will trigger your fear to move away from things that you've known, including suffering, because anything that moves you away from something you've known is new. To backtrack a bit, I, I was very taken up by legitimately thinking that I was going to die from a meteor strike when I was a kid because uh, I could not understand risk. And I think that we, we laugh at that as, as big people, right? These small people thinking about meteor strikes. But then us as big people think about the, the economy crashing, uh, you know, my company going under and me living on the street, you know, like ridiculous things that, that seem real to us. And, and remember that, you know, and I know you know this, right? More for our audience, your kid believes legitimately that that could happen because they're missing information. Now, how often do we face down a, a fear of something thinking it's real, but really we're just missing a hell of a lot of information. Yeah. And we, we don't have the brain power for most of us, not being offensive, but just legitimately the average person, the brain power to process, the training, the experience, or even the, the, the contextual information to be able to assess that risk effectively. But we, we're, we're consumed by it. Something that has been really interesting, uh, interesting me lately is this idea of relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. So for example, you know, wearing, wearing, let's say wearing a helmet will stop me from uh, uh, dying if I get shot in the head, let's say, I'm making stuff up here. 100%, let's say the risk reduction is 100%. But wearing a helmet 24-7 is silly because the absolute risk reduction is an infinitesimally small because first of all, I'm probably not going to get shot in the head. So yeah. wearing a helmet isn't really effective. But something a bit more relatable might be you know, swimming at the beach and, and having a, a shark repellent on. Most people who swim never meet a shark or most beaches don't have sharks of the beaches that do have sharks. You never meet a shark. And even if you do meet a shark, you don't have a bad interaction. And even if you do have a bad interaction, it's not life-threatening. Um, and then if it is life-threatening, you've got healthcare. And so there's infinitesimally small chance of actually dying from a shark attack, which again is something that kids think is going to happen when they swim at the beach all the time. The absolute risk reduction in, in uh, not swimming versus the relative is, is insanely different. And, and this is, I think, important in business uh, as well as life. To, to understand certain behaviors might be, you know, there might be a, a strong relative risk reduction, but the absolute risk reduction is actually very, very small. And so we should actually still do the thing. 100%. Right. I completely agree. What I think exacerbates this, interestingly, is a news business that runs on a business model that is fueled by fear. As in, if they can make you just afraid enough to tune back in the following night, they have done their job, they have advertising to support their business, but fear is a currency that news uses. The way that social media has created something of a crazy comparison game with the curated highlight reel of how everyone else has figured everything out, making you feel afraid of doing something because of how you might not get it right at the beginning. The way that 
marketing, you know, like every message we get from anyone who is marketing is basically telling you that you do not yet have the things that you need in order to be successful. And those messages, whether it's news or social or marketing, all of them play into something in our subconscious that convince us of our inadequacies in a way that keeps us convinced that, yeah, we should believe those infinitesimal statistics that would have us choosing to not go instead of going, even though the odds, when you really do break it down, are so wildly in our favor that we're not going to come up against that worst case scenario that we fear. Mm. I think that to touch on that with, with social media, uh, it's been apparent for me sort of seeing this evolution myself that the the platforms don't, uh, they're not designed to, to make us feel a certain way. They're designed to give us the things that we want to see. So if you yeah. get triggered because you're upset by what you're seeing, it's probably because you keep engaging with it. And so the algorithm just wants to keep showing you stuff that you care about. Because what if you were on a positive trend? You're really, I did this as a, as a study. Uh, I, I pretended like I was really into whales and fish and stuff like that. I just would watch fish related videos. And sure enough, Facebook just started me showing me heaps of fish-related videos. But it was smart because it knew that maybe I'm not going to like fish forever. So it would show me other things that are, are, are mildly similar, uh, fishing, sports, etc. And some of those I'd engage with, some of them I wouldn't. And this algorithm was learning what I wanted to see. Now, I understood this. And I was doing it in a positive spin. But what if it was a negative spin that kept showing me how I'm going to die of all of these terrible things, all this bad stuff's going to happen, or how I'm inadequate or whatever, right? All these rich people and that's not fair. What we have to remember is that it's been shown to us because we're consuming it. Because whatever yeah. you see on your newsfeed is different to whatever I see on mine based on what I interact with and what I enjoy and what I do. And for me, when I really realized that, I said, holy crap, I'm the one who's digging a hole, jumping in it and burying myself. This platform's doing nothing. It's just giving me what I'm basically telling it indirectly that I want. So, so true. I just stop engaging with it. And so yeah. when I'm on social and I see something, and I'm like, oh, I want to read the comments. I'm like, do you though, James? Do you want to read the comments? It's going to be cancer. And so then I guess what? I just don't read the comments. And then I carry on with my day and I have a nice day versus a friend that I know who will read the comments and then have a terrible day and tell me about all this stuff. And I'm like, bro, just stop reading it. Like, I don't understand. Like, just don't read it. And then you yeah. won't see it. No, it's so true. I mean, like guarding our minds, guarding the way that we consume what we do ends up being such an important thing because to your point, these devices, these machines are programmed to keep us inside of an echo chamber. And if we are inside of something that's positive, fantastic. But more often than not, just because of the way that we have historically been attracted to things, like if it bleeds, it leads. If it's, you know, like a little controversial, whatever it ends up being, those are the things that you spend some time on and they just start serving you more and more of those things in a way that convinces you that this is the world. This is the way that it is. This is the way that it, that, that everyone is. So you have to, it's, it's, a, it's such a responsibility, especially as the father of four kids. I have to really be conscientious of how, any kind of screen time is gated and guarded so that they aren't this early on in their life exposing themselves to something that might create a story of what the world looks like that's different from the one that actually exists. Because they don't have a perspective at that age to necessarily recognize what's happening. They can't no. see the matrix yet. And I think that most of us can't, but we need to become more aware of it ourselves yeah. because we're being influenced by the thing we pay attention to. Like I don't read newspapers or the news because it is purely sensationalized, politically influenced 
to guide me to think a certain way because that sells advertising space. Like the news yeah. is not there to educate you. It's there to sell advertising. 100%. Considering that, you know, mainstream media is dying, right? That you're, it, it, somebody, I was talking to somebody about this. They, they pointed out that mainstream media is dying. And so they're getting more and more sensationalized just to get you to pay attention, even more so. And so they're talking about things, obsessing over them, when we just talked about that relative and absolute risk, right? Something that actually is not really an issue, but they're hyping it because, well, I guess we need to know about how many people died on the roads today. Like, how does that, how does that help me? It doesn't, yeah. it just makes me freak out. So uh, last couple of questions for you, my friend. What's something you wish more people understood? Uh, I mean, the, the thing I'm working on in real time, I wish I'd understood earlier. Uh, I am trying every day to answer this question. How do I feel about myself when I am by myself? And the way that I can have a positive reaction to that answer is connected every single time to the way that I have created integrity in my day to who I'd hoped to be in that day and how I actually showed up. So I know that I have a certain number of gifts, that I have a, a suggested that, hey, this is the vision of who I'd hope to become. I have goals. I have habits that I know I ought to kind of stick to or a routine that I want to, to, to stick to. Uh, all of those things end up in some ways being promises that I have made to myself. And so when I am able to keep promises to myself, when I ask the question, how do I feel about myself when I'm by myself, I feel fantastic. When I don't, when I, there's a, the delta between how I've shown up and how I could have shown up or the way that I didn't necessarily keep promises to myself, that space that exists is where my shame, my self-loathing, my lack of confidence, my lack of motivation lives. And so every day I am trying to close that gap. I am trying to create integrity between who I've suggested I want to be, who I've told myself I'm going to be, and how I actually show up in the day. That is the, the singularly most important thing. And the second thing ends up being connected to this tattoo that I've had. It's, a, it's like a mantra of mine for the last like four years. And it's a John Shedd quote, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And so for me, it's been this reminder, and I think it's the reminder for any listener that I was built to handle the choppy waters that live outside of my comfort zone, that I actually possess everything I already need. I already possess everything I need to handle the chaos, the disorientation, the what, whatever it ends up being that I will feel when I leave what I know for what I need. And that is as true for you, the listener, as it is for me you have to start with this belief that you can handle, that you are equipped, that you are that ship that can handle the choppy waters outside of your comfort zone. I think that's, I think it's powerful. I've heard that as well, right? Like the, the ship is safest in the harbor, but it is not designed for that. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of us don't realize. It's like, it's like when we, we, we buy a phone and then we put it in this case to protect it. It's like, well, why? because it needs to stay good. Well, are you going to resell it? It's going to have no value. Why are you doing this? And it's because of this fear stuff. For those of you who can't see because you're listening to the podcast, my, my little boy has, has come down this morning. Um, I love it. Uh, to be with us. So one last question uh, for you is, what's the most important thing you ever learned? The most important thing I ever learned? Goodness gracious. Um, I mean, the, I think the thing that I have come to appreciate is that I am 
a work in progress, that uh, the moniker work in progress is something that earlier in my life, I actually thought of as a negative, that like not yet being where I'd hoped to be suggested that I had not yet given enough effort. I didn't possess the right kind of tools or skills. And I've come now to see work in progress as a badge of honor, a thing that I will just continue to be until the end of my life. And, uh, and the idea that like growing or growth is this most important ingredient in how I might be able to tap into fulfillment or step closer to purpose in, in this book I have coming out called Built Through Courage, uh, the whole through line is this suggestion that each of us was given a very specific set of gifts and experiences, and that we have a responsibility, a mandate almost, to do everything we can every day to honor the intention of a creator who had us put on this planet with those gifts and have gone through the things that we have and experiences for a reason. And so I just believe every day that my job is to step a little bit closer to honoring that reason that I've been put here by continuing every day to be this work in progress. And in a way that, again, I just have pride for now growth as a part of my story. And so I didn't believe that earlier. I wish I had. It would have fundamentally changed the way I approach so many things. But I know it's going to be the way that the legacy that I leave on this planet ends up being written because of how I will continue to become every day between now and the end of time. I, I I massively resonate with that. I, I think that we all need to realize that we're a work in progress. And it's not a matter of saying, well, I'm not good enough. It's not that. It's about saying, yeah, I'm okay with who I am, right? I'm not, I'm not hating myself, but I'm continually trying to improve because that's the game of life. Progression is required to keep playing the game. Uh, and there is fun in that. Uh, and and growth in the growth, you know what I mean? Like who I am now because of my show compared to who I was, like the growth in the growth, you know what I mean? Yeah. So lastly, I'd love it if you can, you just give our audience uh, a place that they can go to connect with you. Tell us a bit more about your book. Uh, today's been an amazing episode and I want people to check out more of your stuff. Right on, thank you. So uh, I spend a decent amount of time on Instagram of any of the social handles. So if you want to follow me and what's happened in my life, Mr. Dave Hollis is my handle. I have a website, mrdavehollis.com, where you can learn about all the things that are happening in life, whether it's the Rise Together podcast that I do, the coaching that I do, this book that I have coming out called Built Through Courage. Uh, and if you are interested, October 26th is the day that it comes out. Uh, it's all about this idea of being really conscientious of where you are, having a, a deep sense of self-awareness and, and candor around what's working and maybe more importantly, what isn't currently working, why you feel stuck, what isn't you know currently in place around habits or routine or coping mechanisms, casting a really, really clear vision of who you'd hope to become and the steps that are necessary to get there. Of anything I've created in my long career, this is by far the proudest thing that I've ever created and I can't wait for people to get it in their hands. Amazing. I'm definitely going to make sure that people are uh, able to see your stuff uh, and go and check that out when it comes out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you, James. Appreciate you too. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Everything shared will be in the description of the episode so you can go and grab that. Now, if you enjoyed the show and you want to listen to more, please subscribe because every week we're releasing new episodes with inspiring people, successful people, so you can level up your game. So subscribe and also leave us a review. We'd love to hear feedback about the show and your thoughts and opinions there as well. 
Now, if you wanna have more success, whether it's in your life, whether it's in your business, we run live trainings every single week where you can get access to me to coach you through everything from health, wealth, success, business. We're doing topics on all things that you need to live a better, more inspired and successful life. Live trainings every single week. Just visit jamesnielsenwatt.com forward slash live and you can get access to that now. There's also a ton of resources that you get for just listening to the show. All of that will be in the description. So if you are watching this on YouTube, check the description. If you're listening to this episode, check the description. We've got a load of resources there for you to have more success in your life, whether it's relationships, investing, or in business. I'll see you on the next episode. And as always, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends because there's somebody else that needs to be hearing this and maybe you're their opportunity to help them level up their game.